Psalm 73. You might want to share the Bible somewhere if you haven't got one. And uh, in the course of the sermon, we will have no cross-references other than, uh, well, none at all, other than uh, we'll be looking at the psalm itself. So that you, if you keep it open, that would be good. I just want to give a quote that I uh, picked up, and it's a sort of an introduction here, and it's this. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a remarkable and courageous uh, man who was eight years in the Siberia, the gulags, in uh, very hostile and severe circumstances, um, said this, Dig up the past and you'll lose an eye. But don't dig up the past and you'll lose both eyes. Now, I know it's a bit enigmatic, but I think it's a good introduction to the psalm. Because the psalmist has a problem. And what he's doing is he's digging up the past. He can't square the circle, if you like. And he's in a dilemma. And this is what he says. This is Asaph, the leader and songwriter in the temple. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds knows no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I'll externalize my thoughts and feelings and emotions, I would have betrayed your children. When I try to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes. So, when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. 
But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge to tell of all your deeds. I'm sure the Lord will say something of substance and consequence to us from this psalm and I, I want us to, to look at it. It's quite interesting in this sense that the psalmist is speaking in a very personal way. Uh, you see in verse 2, as for me, speaking personally, can't speak about other people, this is, this is me, as for me, he says something which is very negative and troublesome for the leader in the temple who shouldn't say things like that. How can he say that when he's encouraging people to worship God? But he does. And it's, it comes to an end in verse 28, but as for me. So we've got those two things and in between is the psalm itself and I want us just to, uh, to look at this. Asaf uh, begins with a rather proc provocative pair of lines. Uh, I think this, what I'm going to read to you is a terrible introduction, but try to see if you can understand it. The second line is in part a restriction of the first. I said that and I thought, I don't understand what that means. Do you? No. Okay. Look, surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. There's, if you like, there is his, you can call it his faith, his theology. He believes that. God is good. And God is good to Israel. It's a statement. And God is good to those who have a lifestyle that is pure in heart. But the second verse seems to restrict as for me, I know it's true for other people, but it doesn't seem to be true for me. And sometimes in the Christian life, what we believe and our experience can be a terrible dilemma. What he is saying here, if I'm not reading too much into it, that's not true for me. I know it's true for other people. I know good people. I know godly people. People are pure in heart. But it's not true for me. And I'm troubled. And I'm troubled. Well, what is his problem? What's his problem? You sometimes say to people, what is your problem? And you know that's not, you don't really want to know. You just want to give off to them. Well, Asaf is, is this is, if, if I can put it like this, um, why, we, we ask the question, don't we, and, and why do bad things happen to good people? Asaf is asking, why do good things happen to bad people? Both questions have their place, but this is where he's at. So, Asaf is not giving off about the evils of the world at this point, but the impurity of his own heart. 
In what sense do you say? Well, look in verse 2. You will see that he is envious, or verse 3, for I, he's giving reasons now, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are people, they are so together, and my life is falling apart. And in verse 2 he says, I almost lost it. Is he, is he losing his faith? You meet people sometimes who say, I've lost my faith. Well, he's in a... It's like, it's like as if someone who's struggling with spiritual jet lag. He can't get his bearings. So let's look at the psalm. That's the sort of introduction, and that will probably suffice as far as uh, getting into um, the atmosphere. And all I want to do now is, is make the customary three divisions. We're not going to look at it in too much uh, detail, but enough to give you a feel for... Um, for this. One of the commentators puts a headline over this psalm and calls it the lucky wicked. The lucky wicked. Well, you judge for yourself as we go through the psalm and make your own, but as for me, as we go through. An outline is very simple. Verses 4 to 12 uh, is the facts objectively. And then verses 13 to 16, the frustrations of Asaph, subjectively, if you like. And then lastly, the future, the future positively, verses 17 to 28. So those are the three, three headings. Let's look at the first, four to seven. Outwardly, everything is together. There are people that he looks at and he says, he's looking generally at his society of his day, and he says, they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, they are free from the burdens common to man, they are lucky, lucky people, they've got it all, they're not plagued by human ills, and they are very proud of it, they are self-made people. They might sometimes say, well, I was in the right place at the right time, but I did it, and I did it my way. That's the sort of thing. So materially, they are wealthy, physically healthy, socially happy. What more do you want? What more do you want? So much for the outward picture, and verses 8 and 10, you have the inward perspective. You see that? Attitudes, if you like. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression, their mouths, look, what a boast. What can they say? Their mouths, they claim to heavens, their tongue, take possession of the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth? No, the strong, the self-sufficient. That's their confidence. Well, they're successful. They've got it all together. And then they say, and God, if there is a God, he is a mere spectator to our lives. Verse 11. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Well, that's what they're like. Now, you may agree or disagree with people you rub shoulders with or whatever. Perhaps you might think it's harsh or you may say, no, that's just how it is so often. The trouble is, Asaph 
is envious of all of that. Isn't that amazing? He's a believer, a worship leader, and he said, I'd like to be like them. I'd like to have what they've got. I'd like to enjoy the things they enjoy, and I can't, and I'm envious. Look at the second, verses 13 to 16. This is the frustration, because we, we, we extend this. And you sense that Asaph's foundation now is being rocked, is being shaken to its foundations. And he begins to feel rather pitiful. Look at verse 13. Surely, they're having a great time. And me? Well, in vain, just for nothing. I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued, been punished every morning. And those are his frustrations as he thinks about his life in contrast to theirs. And then when you look at verses 13 to 15, there is a, there is a distinct change of direction. Notice the number of personal pronouns. I kept my heart pure in vain. In vain I washed my hands. All day long I have been plagued. Every morning I am punished. If I said this, if I speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I try to understand it, it's oppressive to me. What's beginning to dawn on him, he probably doesn't know it at this stage, is that he's actually quite selfish. He's, he's preoccupied with himself. And his focus is entirely self-centered. And any person who is like that, however legitimate you might defend that position, actually it's very oppressive for you and for the people you work and live with. See verse 16, when I try to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Oppressive to me. Now, to his credit, it would be easier, easy to give Asaph a hard time here. He, and this is a great principle in a way in Christian churches and fellowships. How much would you honestly share your thoughts and feelings, your doubts and questions? And he is slightly ill at ease, and I think he's right. He's not being hypocritical or disingenuous. He is saying this, look, look at verse um, 15. If I said, I will speak like this, I would have betrayed your children. I can't do that. Who am I to go around undermining the faith of other people because I'm having a hard time? But I'm still having a hard time. He refuses to air his doubts in public. He didn't want his personal doubt to betray the believer's faith. But it still doesn't go away. 
What can he do then? You, you see, there I painted the, the, the dilemma. Is he just going to struggle in isolation? And say, well, you know, it works for some, it doesn't work for others. It doesn't work for me. And that's it. Or, just suffer in silence. Just keep it to yourself. Well, what's very interesting is the last part of this, this psalm. Um, and verses 17 to 28. Is, think, is there a future? Is there a future? And, and I do think, and there is something about be, not just coming to church. It's, it's much bigger than that. Something about belonging to a covenant people. And so, what you see here, verse 17 seems to me to be almost the turning point, or the beginning of it anyway. It was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. But what about his? And he gives us a different perspective on himself and others. And they come in three ways. Just look at the, the psalm as it continues to unfold in these final verses. Um, the first, if you like, profound realization that's beginning to dawn on him is this. It's not the end of the story. It's not the end of my journey. My pilgrimage is not complete. So, so I shouldn't talk and think as if I, I have arrived. Or that this is all that there is. It's the long haul. It's the long haul. And the long haul, in verses 17 to 19, how suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. God will have the final say in cultures, societies, and people who are godless. And you have it also there in verse 27. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, but as for me. It isn't that he's saying, well, aren't I better? No, he's actually admitting that some places he might be worse than other people. But it's the grace of God that's working in his life. So he's in it for the long haul. What a fool he had been, that he had been envying those whose destiny is destruction. Are we like that? That actually when we look at our society, the role models are the people whose end is destruction. And how much the media impacts and influences our thinking. Who are our mentors, consciously or otherwise? So in the light of the judgment of God, the wicked are to be pitied, not envied. And you see, by now he's done a U-turn. He envied them. I want to be like them. Now he pities them and he says, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. Never, ever. Something, something has happened. Do you see it? The second thing here is this. Yes, he's in it for the long haul and about Asaph himself. Himself. 
Do you see in verses 23 and 24, and I'm, I'm so keen that the psalm speaks for itself, he says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, amazing, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. What a U-turn. And may I say this, that it is in the context of worship that that begins to take place. And it's so easily to be isolated in our struggles, silent in our suffering. And what comes out, and we are here tonight, and God is speaking to us, what? In the context of worship. And it is, may not always appreciate it, an immense privilege to be part of a worshipping community. And it is in this context of listening and responding to God's word that his world is changed and turned around. He is having an encounter with the living God. He's got a sense of God's presence. That's a very difficult thing to define, isn't it? The presence of God, the Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And so he says, you are always with me though I didn't know it. And your right hand was holding me. And I denied it. Of course, the right hand is a symbol of power and affirmation. It's become a tradition in our church because when we give the right hand, we reach out and it's affirming and welcoming and receiving and reassuring. And lastly, Asaph now sees his bitterness. He's got to face it. He's got to face it. If he doesn't, it will surface somewhere else. Or he'll probably blame somebody else. You know, the blame game. And we're all, all terribly good at that, and so was he. But now he has to see that. And you see verses 21 and 22. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me with my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterwards you receive me into glory. Now then, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. You might die of a heart attack, as this lady did in Boxing Day, whose funeral was on Friday. Completely unexpected. Your heart may fail, or mine. And? And? You may ask, and what? Where are you going? What will become of you? You guide me with your counsel and, yes, afterwards, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth desire nothing beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See it, it's a marvelous trans transaction that's taken place. What does he have to do? Well, actually, as a believer, he has to repent of that. Of this, this bitterness that's eating away. He's got to repent of that. And realize that his source of blessing is not in his circumstance. Of course, we appreciate our favorable circumstances. I do anyway. But it should not be the source of my blessing. 
that the source of my blessing is the Lord himself. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth nothing I desire beside you. And so, what's the conclusion? Well, what a contrast. The first, but as for me, in verse 2, I'm losing my foothold. I'm losing my faith. I'm losing my perspective. I'm on slippery ground. I'm on thin ice. You can use whatever illustration. And how does it end? But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. He's my refuge. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paddy chose these songs and it fits in so well. Uh, faithful ones, you are my rock in times of trouble. You lift me up when I fall down. It's this type of language that's used here. The Lord is my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And now he's got something different to say. Different to say. What a contrast. Those who are far from God, they will perish. Those who are near God will be saved. Lucky wicked. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. And if that perspective could be ours as this year unfolds before us, And especially, perhaps, a bit like Paddy and Claire tonight, going to the hospital tomorrow. And try to ask, why is this? Why should that be so? Or for those of us who have inner conflicts and struggles, like Asaph, we've got to move on, haven't we? With God, not from Him. Trusting Him, not so much ourselves. And have a settled peace at a certain point. But as for me, even if in all of my life I do not understand certain things, I will trust him. It's good. You see, God is good to Israel, but he's not very good to me. How's the end? God is good. It is good to be near God. He is good. Even though we don't fully appreciate his goodness.